I'm in Hajjina and you're listening to Voices of the City, a project of Broad Street Radio. Because a lot of people I knew were kind of falling into the whole crack epidemic. It was difficult for me not to fall down that route and fortunately I had an alternative which was hip-hop. You are listening to Voices of the City hosted by Minhaj Gina and produced by Volume. The six-part series will explore race, history and resistance through hip-hop culture in Cape Town from the 1980s until today. In this episode, we have Bush Radio with Shamima Williams who, along with EJ and Bernie, from the group known as Kodesa. In the year 2000, the new South Africa was emerging from its honeymoon phase. The deep cracks in the country's foundation formed by more than 300 years of oppression and masked by the 1994 hope of a new society was beginning to be exposed. The cracks were expanding, forced apart by unresolved and worsening social ills. In Cape Town, most remained bound by the shackles of poverty. Race, gender and class inequalities remained unchanged since 1994. Some, especially along the Cape Flats, found refuge in gangs. In Woodstock, close to the inner city, a young storyteller by the name of Shamima Williams found refuge in a growing movement called hip-hop. Through hip-hop, she began to reimagine a new society. Shamima was a revolutionary. She was immersed in community hip hop movements in the city. She would run circles around male MCs who dominated the culture. Shamima dreamt about an all-female hip hop crew that would shake the foundations of the culture. She reached out to the storytellers EJ and Bernie, and together they told the world about the experiences of black women living in the city. They called themselves Godessa. Shamima continued to speak truth to power and went by the name Shame. Welcome to Voices of the City. Thank you for having me. Before we start the interview, can you tell us where we're sitting right now? To be exact and specific, we're sitting in the studio of the first radio show in Cape Town in the oldest radio station on the continent called Bush Radio. And we are in Woodstock. Um, it's just a short distance away from the CBD and Cape Town Harbour. It's a very cool little suburban area that sometimes crosses over between like a ghetto sort of feel and also this very professional suburban side to it as well. And then it's got this amazing... undercurrent of a very artsy vibe also so i think that's what stuck in a nutshell and even bush radio as well and you grew up not far from here yeah i grew up just on the other side of woodstock um an area called warmer estate which is sort of at the foot of table mountain at the top of district 6 and then also here in woodstock and salt river so sort of all three areas around here And were, you, were your family always living in Woodstock? No, um, my maternal family comes from the west coast of a small rural town called Mamre, you know, one of those old Moravian towns. And then my father's side of the family come from Bontyville and District 6. Okay, and how did they end up here? My 
mom's side, um, my grandmother came to work in Cape Town as a young woman. She initially came to work in Seapoint, which was a predominantly wealthy Jewish area at the time. Um, and she migrated from Seapoint up towards the city and eventually settled in Warme Estate. She worked as a maid. That's how she was able to survive in Cape Town as a young rural woman. And then my father, them, yeah, they were in District 6 and, you know, like the story goes, people were relocated and they were relocated to Bonteville on the Cape Flats. And was that after you were born or before you were born? Before I was born. Tell us more about your family, the community in Woodstock at the time. So my family is mixed. My father's side of the family is Malay. My mom was originally, like I said, from a Moravian town. So she was actually Christian and Moravian. And when my parents got married, my mom converted to Islam. And so through the influence of my father, other family members like my grandparents also converted to Islam. And so, yeah, by the time I was born, half of my maternal side had converted and settled in a sort of Malay area, which is Borme State. And yeah, so we were then raised into a fairly conservative sort of Malay household. Woodstock and Warme State are both very mixed Malay and Christian and Portuguese sort of neighborhood, all three of them combined. So I've been very lucky to grow up in an area that has a lot of diversity, I think very similar to District 6 had that, you know, a lot of people think District 6 was only non-white people that lived there. There was actually quite a mix of people that lived there. And I think these areas echo that spirit that that community had as well. Um, there's two sides to, to the area, you know, Woodstock, when I was growing up, especially in the 90s, places like New York were starting to suffer a crack epidemic. And in Woodstock, this was one of the first places that crack had hit, similar to that sort of New Jack City image, mm -hmm. um, sort of vibe of that movie. Woodstock was a lot like that in the 90s when I was growing up here. A lot of people that I grew up with very quickly became addicted to crack. It happened like that overnight. You know, it wasn't something I'm, I'm surrounded by it all the time because you live in Woodstock, you are going to be surrounded by a lot of merchant houses where they sell drugs and gang leaders. A lot of the headquarters um, are based in, in Woodstock and so forth. So there's the seedy element that exists, but there's also this other element that exists as well. It seemed like a lot of artists, at hip-hop artists at the time, especially in Cape Town, didn't start off emceeing, started off b-boying, or started off practicing other parts of, of hip-hop culture. Was it the same for you? Oh no, I always wanted to be an MC. I, obviously like many of us, we start out writing poetry, and poetry evolves into you know, whatever your in wherever your interest lies. I always loved reading. Um, so, you know, combined my passion for reading and writing and loving hip hop, it was natural for me to become an MC. Let's talk about Godessa. How was Godessa formed? 
Um, Gardesa was formed in 2000, in March. Bernie and I knew each other. We used to perform at an open mic every Saturday at a club called Angels out in Greenpoint. And then I heard EJ. I used to work at Bush Radio. Okay. On I, I co-hosted Headwarmers with Shane. And, you know, people used to call into the radio station and drop their rhymes. And that's that's what I used to do before I joined the station as well. So you'd always discover MCs from all over Cape Town through listening to Bush Radio. And EJ dropped a rhyme on Bush Radio one night. And that same week I'd been hearing about this girl who battled some guys and like totally killed it in the battle. And so when she called onto the show that night, I was like, can I get your number? Can I call you back? And right after the show, I called her and we arranged to hook up myself her and Bernie. I was working on a documentary and along with Mr. Devious and Untouchable Fellows, that's Mr. Mercy and B-Wise, these are MCs, B-Boys, um, out of Beacon Valley, Mitchell's Plane. We all worked on a soundtrack for a documentary. The, you know, it's, it had a lot to do with gang and prison life type of thing and the voice it was already such a male-centric documentary there was no female perspective and so we thought we could provide a female perspective to the soundtrack around how those kind of issues affect us as women in the community and that's how Godessa was essentially born we went into that project just to work on a couple of tracks but then decided you know, we seem to like each other, we seem to work really well together. Instead of trying to hustle on our own, let's try and do this together. And where did the name come from? Oh, the name... You know, there wasn't much great thought into it. Like, people yeah. think there's this deeply spiritual meaning behind Goddessa, the name. And I think over time, it did take on more than what the name was in the beginning but it was just us trying to figure out how we could have a strong female name but that wasn't a typical name so yeah it, it was like a slip of the tongue coming up with different names and we landed on that one and we loved it and you know we were like a lot of the hip-hop at that time, especially in the 90s, there was that Afrocentric Nubian vibes mm. into Egyptian history and mythology and that sort of thing. So there's a little bit of that influence in there where we see ourselves as goddesses and so forth. You, you speak about the fact that hip-hop at the time, and I think still now, was and is very masculinist was associated with violence, gangsterism, chauvinism. How did Godessa navigate this? Well, I mean, we come from an era where hip-hop wasn't necessarily... Yes, there was that era of gangster rap that had sprung up in the 90s, but especially Cape Town hip-hop artists were very influenced by the more socio-political hip-hop coming out of the US. So... You know, it was natural for a lot of artists here to also follow that route because of the time of the country, the nature of what was happening in the country. 
So that old gangster mentality wasn't such a huge part of that early formation of Cape Town hip-hop. And the, the, the masculinist nature of hip-hop at the time? I mean, I can say in hindsight now, it's actually a myth because a lot of women were pretty active in the early days of hip-hop. Okay. Um, they just don't speak about them a lot. They don't mm. write a lot about them in history. But if you really look into it, you realize that a lot of the well-known and strongest MCs in the beginning were women. Um, and also with with that whole Afrocentric era of the way artists were minded, the way their minds had worked at the time. People were very respectful towards women and hip-hop taught you that because that's okay. the kind of hip-hop that you were listening to. So if women could be included in that community, at least that's my early experience. Later things begin to change a little bit, mm. you know, and especially once you become a professional group and so now you start dealing with a bit more of that male chauvinism in music in general, not just in hip-hop. Would you say that part of your challenge as Godessa was to change the image of hip-hop? If you're referring to something I said when I was 19 or 20 years old, is it something specific you're referring to that I might have said? What's the no, context? No, um, you, you're saying that sort of the public image of hip-hop was, if I'm understanding correctly, was masculine. Even though there were women MCs and women played, mm. played a big okay. role in building the yeah. foundation. So, so do you think that part of the challenge of Godessa was to change the image, the public image of hip-hop? I think, again, that comes a bit later. In the beginning, um, based on our experience, the men in the community were very supportive. So okay. if you wanted to be an MC or breakdance, they, they were guys that were going to teach you to do that. You know, Be besides it was cool to have a girl in your crew or, mm. or something like that, you know. Where it does become challenging is when you battle. Like EJ was a battle MC, Bernie and I used to battle a, li a little bit. And watching other women uh, battle guys are vicious and it always comes down to genitals and if they know things about your personal history so it's a little bit like high school slut shaming and and that type of thing so as a female MC you can never step into a battle and think that you're going to go up against an MC that's going to respect you as an MC and drop lyrics that mm. are not about your genitals or the way you look or you know, so initially I think that was one of the most challenging things. And then just as time goes by, I think we were fortunate to emerge at a time when hip hop was starting to become a part of the bigger South African music industry, where it wasn't just this isolated movement. And once we were able to evolve into becoming a part of of the industry, then it also became a bit more challenging because a lot of groups who had been around for a long time, who'd been working really hard for a long time and putting out music weren't getting the recognition that we were getting. So it's almost like on the flip side of things now where males are always getting the most publicity and the most attention in hip-hop, we were able to garner some of that because yeah. Maybe it was trendy, maybe it was because we were a novelty, 
Um, maybe it was just the time. I'm, I'm still not sure why. But yeah, that did cause a bit of challenges for us as well. A lot of your music is about self-actualization, mm. um, which I think was important at the time. It was post-94, a lot of people were trying to figure out their identities, a lot of communities were trying to figure out their identities. Godessa rejected the apartheid race categorization, and you yourself often, or I think in most cases, refer to yourself as black. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's actually something that's changed over time. I think, you know, going back again to what was influencing and the kind of artists that were influencing Cape Town, hip-hop specifically, was that Afrocentric stuff, the notion of Islam influenced hip-hop and that sort of thing. So if you were part of that mindset and that community and identify as black because you know, you're from Africa, you descendant of slaves, like that whole history and that whole mindset and consciousness that that type of hip-hop had. So for us as colored people here in Cape Town, already there's almost this rejection of the colored race and there's this identity crisis that we as colored people had then and still have now. Um, so it was just I think a way of fitting in who we are at this moment right now as the country is changing and what we are influenced by. We see ourselves as young black women that wants to have a voice outside of just identity and race, you know. Yeah. But Today, I, I, I see things completely differently, and this is the thing about growing up, you know. Mm. Even the music you made when you were 20 years old might not necessarily reflect, reflect the views that you have now. So now I'm very proud to say that I'm colored, not that I don't want to say that I'm black, because I am also black, but the colored community is often misrepresented and sidelined and there is a lot for us to be proud of. And so I see our identity a little bit differently than I did when I was much younger. In 2002, social ills drops and is played across the country and across the world. It shakes the foundation of the culture in Cape Town. Did the song reflect the mood of the city at the time? Do you know, a lot of Goddess's songs were very, especially the early songs, were very organically produced and written. It wasn't like we sat down and thought about, let's write a song about the social ills in our society. We heard a beat, and this is the relationship for me often with the beat when I'm writing something. It 
it's like the beat is telling you what to write essentially you connect to either the bass line or the drum track or you know it, it, that's why EJ's flow is different to mine because mm. she might be flowing to the drum I might be flowing to the bass Bernie might be flowing to the guitar or or whatever so Social Ills and the second single Minds Ablaze were both organically produced like that where we heard the beat and within a map less than an hour we had written the song so that's where our heads were at yeah. as individuals and as people and so that naturally comes through in whatever the beat is telling you to do so you're not like conceptualizing sitting there thinking oh we gotta write about this because mm. this is now an issue and you know yeah sometimes it is like that because you maybe get commissioned to write a song for a specific theme or, or something but yeah social ills was pretty organically produced and written must have been a shock when you realized that it had such an impactful political message i think i only saw that afterwards because when it's happening to you you don't see the impact right and social ills wasn't a commercial success it's mm. more of the sort of underground cult type of classic and it's the song that got us signed to African Dope Records. Through being signed with them, we were able to produce this incredible pink music video, as it's known. And for me, the music video was more impactful than just the song itself, because the music video was so artistically created. Also, two girls that, that made the video. Um, you know, you can take so much away from the song, but when you experience the song with the music video, it really takes you into our heads and paints a perfect picture of what we were thinking. Mm. I don't know, it's crazy, even more so than just the song on its own. But in hindsight, again, um, social ills, I think, caught on because it was catchy. I think that's what drew people in and only afterwards they get the message, you know, and that's the, the trick most to try and draw people in in that way. You, you spoke about your second single, Minds of Plays, mm. uh, which was released after Social Ills. Mm. And you, you're saying that it's, it, it was like Social Ills, emerged organically. But interestingly, it was like a very clear deviation in terms of the message that it portrayed from social ills. Did Kudessa realize that that deviation was there at the time? Well, again, the process of that song, how, how it happened was we were rehearsing with our band at the rehearsal studio and the keyboardist was playing that melody that you hear in Minds Ablaze, the keyboards. And then the rest of the band started jamming. Okay. Months later, uh, we were working on Spillage, on the album, and we needed a single. And we'd gained enough popularity at that time, but we hadn't crossed over to being on commercial radio enough. And so we did need something that would help us to cross over. So we needed something with a different sound. And we remembered the song from the rehearsal. Luckily, we had recorded the rehearsal. And again, the same like Social Ills, within an hour, we had written Minds Ablaze. And Greenville had produced it based off of the keys from the original recording. Mm -hmm. 
so again, that, this is this is like maybe six years or something after Social Ills came out. There was a lot of other songs we had written in between Social Ills and Minds Ablaze. So our experiences were changing, our thoughts were expanding, and we also started to feel that as we're moving out of this enthusiasm of the rainbow people we now needed to live together and get along with each other and i think minds ablaze represents that in many ways it represents the sound of cape town the feel of cape town and the diversity and the way my generation of different racial groups got along post 94 as young adults, you know, it's very reflective of Cape Town during that period coming out of 94 into the early 2000s. So I don't think politically it's that different because there is still a message there that is very clear that, mm. you know, the times have changed and how do we get along? How do we put the past behind us? So there needs to be something lighter to celebrate that. And so we need to move away from some of the heavy content, even though the rest of the album was quite heavy as well. You've also done a lot of important work beyond hip hop. You worked in schools, um, you worked in prisons. Was that work linked to your work as an MC at all? Yes and no. I started working in prisons before Gardessa, but I was already involved in hip hop. I was already an MC. And since I was a young girl, I've always uh, been involved in some kind of organization that represents some form of social activity, you know. So wherever I feel I can be useful, um, I try and involve myself and I've always been passionate about ensuring that our young people have positive role models to look up to and at the same time to fulfill my own passion of trying to be better. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Ultimately, what do you think Godessa's most important contributions to hip-hop in Cape Town in particular is? I think... I mean, it's kind of a difficult thing to personally say, but based on what people have told me over the years or what I've seen written about us from other people's perspective, one of the things would be we showed groups, especially in Cape Town at the time, that it was possible to take a Cape Town hip-hop group outside of Cape Town POC and BVK had done some of that in, in the 90s and Black Noise to a certain extent as well. And then we took it a little bit further uh, through international tours and international hip-hop projects and so forth. Mm. Um, and we did everything ourselves. We didn't have a lot of money behind us. Hip-hop, there was no hip-hop awards. There was no hip-hop industry. There was no platinum for a hip-hop record or anything like that. So with the little resources we had, we were able to do a lot of things. And so crews were always coming to us, asking us how can they uh, move forward, how can they progress, because we progressed very quickly. And I think a part of that was maybe because there was this novelty attached to us because we this female hip-hop group. But I mean, we could actually rap and we did have an awesome show and we had an awesome band. And so 
that also set an example, I think, to Cruz that you can't just be an MC and show up and think that that's your show. You got to have more to your show than that. And to expand your audience beyond just hip hop listeners, be able to perform at jazz festivals or you know, all kinds of different platforms that's not limited to hip-hop. And that's what a lot of crews were doing, performing at park jams or hip-hop clubs or, you know, that sort of thing. I think for me, that's one of the, the biggest things probably that we try to set an example to, to other crews for is just expand your act. Mm. Um, unless you are immortal technique that can stand alone on a stage for an hour and just rap with a DJ, unless you're that good, you need to bring something more to your performance. If you want to make money from it, if you want to have a career, and if you want to travel with it. You speak a lot about how your ideas of identity has changed over the years, or matured, rather, mm-hmm. and your, your politics has matured as well. If you were to make an album today, what themes would you explore? Well, I've been recording stuff like at my own pace for the past few years um, and it's very different to the Gardessa music. It's a lot more personal. Okay. Coming out of a group, it actually takes a lot of effort to figure out your identity as a solo MC. Um, so that was like a hurdle I had to overcome once I had left Gardessa and then it was just figuring out who I am creatively. And so that is a process that is continuous because anything I write is informed by my experience or something I feel passionate about. And what I was passionate about then is not the same now, Mm. even though it's connected in some ways. It's been 20 years since Godessa released Social Ills. How do you think hip hop, especially in Cape Town, has progressed since then? That's rough because on an industry level, it hasn't progressed that much. I feel like we set a pace that people didn't really um, capitalize on in that moment. Whereas Johannesburg exploded in a very short period of time. I think we're still at a bit of a disadvantage in the Cape Town because so much of the broadcast resources is not in Cape Town. Mm You know, we've been told, not not me personally, but Cape Town artists have been told, very popular Cape Town artists have been told the accents don't suit MTV. Um, so their music is never going to get played on MTV. Those kind of challenges are going to inhibit Cape Town artists from having a national artistic fame in some regard because you're not visual enough in the way that MTEs or, you know, some of the, the top five Joburg artists or something, the top five artists in Cape Town are not half as visible as the top five artists in Joburg on a national or continental scale. So as, as long as that divide still exists, it's very difficult for Cape Town and some of the other smaller provinces, it's very difficult for them to grow. So you kind of have to keep it in the city and there's just not enough money for it to sustain, to sustain itself and for it to really grow into a lucrative path to take. But on a movement level, 
it's again, it's still pretty much the same. People are very sentimental in Cape Town hip hop. They like to hold on to the past a lot. Um, I think that is to their own detriment. That is to our own detriment because we hold our own progress back. Can I add to that though, the one thing that has happened that is super positive about Cape Town hip hop is the growth of Afrikaans hip hop and the dialects around mm. Afrikaans hip hop. Um, whether you in the Southern Cape or the Western Cape or the Northern Cape, there are these hip hop dialects and styles that have emerged. That is the most exciting thing for me to happen since POC or yeah. since Godessa. There is a viable industry that is waiting to be tapped into there. Besides the creativity of these artists that have come up from Jacques to Jutzwanger to artists from the last 15 years especially. Oh man, they're incredible. And a lot of them have really cool acts. But mm. the, the opportunity to perform and exploit, um, it, it's, it's just too little of it. Mm. But if you take a group of Afrikaans hip-hop artists now and you put them on a West Coast tour to the Southern Cape, to the Northern Cape, you're going to have packed houses. It's going to be a different hip-hop experience to Joburg or to Cape Town, but mm. it's going to be a hip-hop experience that has the potential to become the identity of Cape Town hip-hop. You know, to finally have a solid identity for Cape Town hip-hop. I mean, it, it really is incredible. I never realized how incredible it was until, until I started doing this. It, it's a whole other other world. Yes, um, and, it's, and, and it's raw and it's new and it's... It's watching something being, being born like right in front of you. It's taking what Bivika and POC wanted to do that like 10 years later, they finally achieved that by having artists finally wanting to rap in their own languages and wanting to explore how to mess with that language enough to make it your own. And that's what the Afrikaans hip-hop artists have done brilliantly, is taken that colonial oppression of the Saver Afrikaans and turned it into all these different reflections of the colored identity throughout the Cape. What do you think the Cape Town hip-hop community need to do to achieve that and to revive the momentum built by MCs in the early 90s, in the late 90s? I think for the Afrikaans uh, part of what's happening with hip-hop in, in the Cape Town and the broader Cape is investment. You know, whether the money comes from government or whether the money comes from uh, local business people, but if nobody invests in this really incredible thing that is happening, then it's just going to die down. It's going to die out eventually, and you're going to be left with a few artists. At the moment, you have the Afrikaans sort of broadcasters who are trying to capitalize on that, but that means that they then set the standard for what Afrikaans hip-hop should be. Mm. A, a great example of that is with the Guma Awards. They introduced the hip-hop cate category for the first time about four years ago. And if you know the, anything about the Guma Awards, it's very white, Afrikaner white. Um, and 
so now you're slotting hip hop onto that stage, but it's Afrikaans hip hop, right? So I was one of the judges, so I was able to see what their cri the criteria that they set for, you know, the, the hip hop category. And there's no way that they can judge on technical ability or lyricism and those type of things, you know, because you don't even understand the genre enough yet mm. to be able to say this is the best artist this year, you know, so it's some investment. It's it's like giving a platform. A couple of artists have become quite successful coming out of the Guma Awards over the last couple of years, but they're the wrong artists because they are the artists that those broadcasters are choosing to promote. And so if we leave it in those hands and let it go down that route, then we're going to lose complete control of something that took so long to finally say, yeah, we are Afrikaans hip-hop, our identity. Even the South African Hip-Hop Awards don't celebrate Afrikaans hip-hop, but they celebrate all the vernac, you know, all the other vernac artists. Um, so, yeah, that's a big big um, issue I have with the South African hip-hop awards as well. Shamima, top five artists right now in Cape Town? In Cape Town, it's always Mr. Devious. He's not alive, but he will always be. Jacques also passed away, but his music lives on. Isaac Mutant, always one of the best. Bernie Aman, she's not here, but she's always been one of my favorite lyricists. And Jitswanger, yeah. Shemima Williams, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been Voices of the City and I'm your host, Minhaj Gina. This episode is produced by Amina Deka Asma and Volume. Join us next week for another episode where another voice of the city will continue to take us on the journey of exploring race, history and resistance through hip-hop in Cape Town. Volume.